ahead and turn to Genesis 1. That's the first place we're going to be. And then if you want to go ahead and mark John chapter 4, that's the other main place we're going to be. majority of the time will be in John 4. If you've got your own Bibles, especially uh, for John 4, because I'm not going to have all those verses on the screen for you. But if you could turn there, that'd be great. Um, let's see if my clicker is going to work for me. We'll see. Anyway, we're in a series called Worship 1, 2, 3. And uh, we've defined Christian worship over and over again as this. Christian worship is the sincere satisfaction in God that displays His worth. When we're talking about worship, that's what we're talking about. Being so satisfied in who God is that we display, demonstrate, represent how worthy He is in our life. So, one of the key things that we've talked about in that is using this language of one, two, three. So there's one object in worship, that's God. There's two contexts, that's gathered and scattered. We're going to talk about the scattered context today. And there's three audiences. When you worship, God is looking at your worship. Uh, Other people in this room are looking at your worship. And also nations, others, unbelievers are looking at your worship. So um, we're going to focus on the scattering today. That we do not only worship when we gather in this building, but when we scatter. So we've sought to clarify in our very first sermon how when we think of worship, we usually think of worship as singing or as a Sunday service. While we sometimes limit our understanding of worship to those activities, worship is more of a way of life. It displays God's worth not only when we come together in this room, but when we go outside this room. So our whole lives should be marked by a sincere satisfaction in God. Everything you do in life should show that God is the one who is satisfying you. God is the one that you treasure the most above all things. So that happens not only inside this room, but outside this room. As followers of Jesus, worship is something that consumes all of our life. It's an all-of-life reality. So in the opening pages of the biblical story, we see that human beings, you and me, we were designed as worshipers. It says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. The basic thing to see here is that God created us to image him. We've talked about that a lot. But the fact that we were created to point to God, to glorify God, to represent God, means that we were born to be worshipers. That's our destiny. Our destiny is to be worshipers. So our destiny concerns our worship. So how do we do that? Now the next thing, the next verse actually talks specifically to how we image God in the world. A lot of times we don't mention this verse. But this is something that's called the creation mandate. So it's directly following the image of God passage. And it says, God blessed man and woman, Adam and Eve. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves. So when we think about how we should point to God and we image God, this is the way we do it. We do it by being fruitful and multiplying and subduing the earth. This is what's called the creation mandate. We have been commissioned and mandated as people, as image bearers in this world, to be fruitful and multiply, which means develop the social world. You've been created to have a family, 
to build community, to build cities, to build nations. You develop the social world. That's part of who you are as a, as a human being. God says, this is what you've been mandated to do since you are made in God's image. He says also to subdue the earth. It's harnessing the potential of the natural world. He says, you know, have dominion over the fish of the sea. Have you ever ate like a piece of salmon and was like, I've got dominion over this salmon, right? <laughs> like you eat some chicken, you're like, you are subdued, chicken. I have dom- dominated you, <laughs> Yeah, It's not like that. It's more of, okay, how can you have the, how can you harness the potential of the natural elements in this world and use that for good? This is what technology is. Technology, what, it's taking the potential of the natural world to use it and develop it. So this is what you've been called to do. You've been called, as, Chris, as, as, as image bearers of God, human beings, you've been called to develop the social world and harness the potential of the natural world. So what we call, it, what we call this is cultural formation. You are called to form a culture. You form culture. This is what you've been born to do. You've been born to create a culture. And that's what culture, culture is. It's just a it's developed social world and potentials of the, of the natural world. But since you are God's image bearers, right, since you're, you're supposed to image God, then that means that the culture you form on earth is supposed to be reflective of God's lordship. So you are called to display God's worth by forming a culture that reflects God's lordship. We display God's worth by forming a culture that reflects God's lordship. This is, this is actually what you're supposed to be doing as a human being. As a human being, this is what you're supposed to be doing. You're forming a culture that reflects or displays God's lordship. The main thing I want you to see in this statement is that our act of worship means that we are f- reflecting God's worth to others. Not merely one another, but to other people outside this room. Our act of Christian worship means that we are seeking to influence others, create a culture of worship by showing people how worthy God is. And as we do this, we are, we are building and, and forming a culture that reflects God's lordship. So this is the creation mandate. This is what you are supposed to do as a human being. A lot of us, we don't form culture, we consume culture. Right? We think of culture as something out there that influences us. But we should be the primary influencers of culture. That's a whole other discussion for another time. But the basic thing to know is this. God created human beings so that his worth could be displayed throughout all of the world. So a whole culture can know him. So there's this interesting story in Genesis 11. Um, if you were in middle school, Sunday school, two years ago, the Tower of Babel, somehow, if someone could clear this up, got renamed the Tailor of Babies. I don't know how to, I that. But now, every time I read the Tower of Babel story, I literally read Tailor of Babies <laughs> in the story. Like, it's Tailor of Babies. That doesn't even make any sense. Like, it doesn't, grammatically, Tailor of Babies. Oh, okay, it was Zane. that makes sense. I'm sure Jace had some hand in that. But anyway, the, the story of the Tower of Babel, of Tower of Babel um, 
is an interesting story. But what I want you to do is understanding the creation mandate, right? Understanding that we're called as human beings to go and spread and form a culture that represents God's lordship. Let's reread this story. So, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had a brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So what are the people's intentions here? Their intentions are to build this tall giant tower that reaches to the sky or the heavens. Every time you see the word heavens in the um, Old Testament, it's just referring to the sky. That's all it's referring to. In the top of the heavens, they wanted to build a tower that, that reached to the heavens because they actually believed, like physically, that's where the gods were. And they wanted to build it there and make a name for themselves. So, um, one, their goal is twofold. They want to, to make a name for themselves. And two, they don't want to be dispersed. They don't want to be spread out. They want to remain huddled together. Right? So that's, they want to exalt themselves, glorify themselves, and remain huddled up all together and not get scattered throughout the earth. So what does God do? What does God do? The Lord came down to see the city and a tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they have all one language, and this is the only, only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. This is God speaking. Let us go down and there confuse their language. And this is the reason why. So that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So... God looks down at this operation that's going on. And he determines that it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing that they're building this tower. And in response to this, God scatters the people. He confuses their language so that he can scatter them. A lot of times we just use the story to be like, and that's how all the languages came about. Right, kids? And everyone's like, okay, that, that's weird. But no, it's more about this whole idea that they wanted to huddle together. And God confused their languages so that he would scatter them. So that they would be spread out and dispersed. So that's why it was a bad thing. It was a bad thing because the Tower of Babel is about a people who were directly disobeying the creation mandate God had given. It wasn't simply that they were using technology. It wasn't simply um, that they wanted to build a city. It's that they wanted to huddle together and not be dispersed. They didn't want to be dispersed. So instead of harnessing the potential of the natural world to exalt God's name and how worthy he is, they wanted to exalt their own name and proclaim how they were worthy. Instead of being fruitful and multiplying over all the earth, they wanted to remain huddled together. So God's desire was for his people to scatter so that they could fill the whole earth with worship of him. That's what we're called to do. 
We are called to scatter so that we can fill the whole earth with worship. That's what scattered worship is. We are called, just as in the story of the Tower of Babel, to be scattered throughout the world. Not simply huddle together and talk about how awesome God is, but to spread out and to scatter uh, worship. So here's, here's one of the things that we have to admit. Because of our sinful nature, we will be inclined to build monuments like Towers of Babel, towers, for our glory rather than multiply for God's glory. This is a tendency that we have to admit in ourselves. We will be inclined or tempted to build monuments that glorify us, make a great name for us, rather than spread out and make, a, make God's name great, exalt God's name. Multiply God's glory. Guys, this is, this is not simply something that... Yeah, um, this is something we as a church could find difficult to, to do. We, are, we have a tendency to want to build our church to be great. We want to make this church an awesome place, a monument for God's worship. When really we're called to multiply God. Or multiply our worship so that God gets glory. Even churches fall into this trap of making monuments for our own glory rather than multiplying for God's glory. So guys, as, as much as I want this student ministry to, like, to grow and thrive, right? As much as I want us in this room to have a good time and to uh, be equipped to, to be built up in our faith, this isn't about us. Ultimately, we want to equip each one of you in here so that you take the gospel outside of these doors, so that you multiply the worth of God's name outside of this room. We don't want to build a monument here. We want to multiply out there. But we have this tendency. We have a tendency to build monuments here. So we have to make sure, just in all of this, as we talk about scattered worship, we have to understand that it's about God's glory, not ourselves. And so we have to admit that on the front end. So how do we do that? How do we scatter throughout this world showing how worthy and awesome God is? How do we worship in the scattered context? This turn to John 4. John 4 is this really cool story um, called The Woman at the Well. It's what it's known as. Does anyone have a well? Anyone drink well water? Well water? Do you actually have to draw water? No. I don't know how wells work. <laughs> really? Has anyone actually, like, taken up water from a well? At Snowbird? Like Snow White? I don't know. <laughs> I was like, Snowbird has a well? What? <laughs> well, I don't know. Um, I haven't either, but I was just wondering. Wells aren't very popular these days. They were very popular back then. That's the whole point. So there's this interesting story, and I'm going to need you guys to either pull up on your phone or your Bible so you can kind of follow along here. Interesting story of Jesus in John's account of the gospel. Now, John's gospel, it's a beautiful piece of literature. His whole goal in this gospel account is to show that Jesus is the Messiah. He's worthy to be believed. He's the one who proved to be the Christ, the promised one, and you should believe in him so that you have eternal life. So he works all these stories to show that Jesus is awesome. and He is who he says he is. Um, and uh, this, even, one of, uh, even this story is one of those accounts of showing how awesome Jesus is. So Jesus is journeying to Galilee. 
and he has to go through this place called Samaria. Now, Samaria were, and the Samaritans were like untouchable regions. Like Jews did not go to Samaria. They weren't supposed to um, be in contact with Samaritans. So even the fact that Jesus goes into to Samaria is kind of a shocking thing. Um, so Jews didn't associate with Samaritans, but Jesus decides to travel through there, which is shocking. So he goes to this place that's called Jacob's Well. It's a place that actually Jacob, who was a patriarch in the Old Testament, he made this well. And starting in verse 7, this Samaritan woman comes to get a drink. So Jesus at this well, the Samaritan woman shows up. And Jesus asks this woman to get her some water. So she's, I'm, I'm assuming that she would be kind of shocked, but she basically says, like, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, how can you ask me for a drink? So Jesus answers her in a very, like, just think about, try to put yourself in this woman's shoes. This is how Jesus answers her. He says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for the living water. So, like, this woman is, like, just minding her own business, <laughs> right? And there's Jesus. She walks up, and Jesus is like, hey, can you give me some water? And she's like, uh, I don't think I'm supposed to talk to you. You're like a Jew. And he's like, um, if you knew who I really was, you'd be asking me for living water. And there's this woman. She's just, like, standing there like, okay, this is getting really weird, <laughs> right? Um, so, notice that Jesus elevates the conversation, Right? Jesus is there, and there's this ordinary moment that's happening, and Jesus elevates it, and he goes straight to talk of not only physical water, but living water. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school today. You guys should always try to elevate the conversation. Don't simply limit it to talk about the weather or sports or video games. Try to elevate the conversation. Drive it to not only talking about physical water, but living water. So anyway, Jesus um, elevates this conversation talking about her deepest thirsts, about a water that doesn't go dry. And anyway, the woman doesn't catch Jesus' drift. She's stuck in the natural, and she says, okay, so you, but you pretty much have nothing to draw the well with. Like, you, you, can't, you can't draw the well because you don't have anything to draw the well with. So she's saying, why would I ask you for water, basically, when you don't even have anything to draw water with? And then she sees that something is up, with this guy, Jesus. And she questions who he is. She goes, are you greater than our father Jacob? She knows something's up with Jesus. So she goes, are you greater than our father Jacob? And Jesus, again, he answers by elevating the conversation. He claims that the water he is offering is, is living, and it springs up to eternal life. And the woman basically responds like, well, that's pretty awesome. If I can have water and never thirst again, why don't you go ahead and give me some of that water? Okay, And then, again, Jesus does something really weird in the conversation. And he says, um, go get your husband. Now, at this point, I bet the woman's really freaked out. She was like, I was just here to get some water, and now Jesus is talking to me about husband. And basically, she's like, um, I don't have a husband. And Jesus goes, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with right now isn't your husband. So again, this woman, she's like, dude, <laughs> I'm just trying to get some well water, and you're bringing up my past and like all this other stuff. And he's like, yeah, that's true. You don't have a husband. You've had five, and the man you're living with now isn't. 
So I'm sure that she's kind of feeling unsettled at this point, right? And obviously, what Jesus is doing is he's showing his power, that he knows her life. The seemingly complete stranger, he knows her life. And then the, the key passage I want us to focus on is the next one. So the woman responds to Jesus after he points out that she's had five husbands. And she goes, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors, the Samaritans, worship on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So this lady starts talking about, she, she recognized Jesus as a prophet, and she starts talking about the customs of worship. She says, okay, you're a prophet. Well, in my heritage, I'm supposed to worship on this mountain. But for the Jews, the Jews say you have to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And this is how Jesus responds. He says, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship, the Jews, what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. So the woman, probably very interested in what Jesus says here, responds, um, Okay, that's interesting. Now, I know that the Messiah, who's called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he's going to explain all this. And then Jesus says, I, the one you're speaking to, I'm, I am he. I'm the Messiah. So I want to focus in on those verses 21 through 24 because it's there that I think Jesus answered this, this woman's comments about worship. While she rightfully states that Jews claim worship is supposed to happen in a specific place at the temple or Jerusalem, Jesus answers that true worship is beyond that. True worship will not be limited to a location. Jesus claimed that people will not need to worship on a specific mountain or in a specific city, but worship will only need to be in spirit and in truth. So there are three things I want to observe about scattered worship from this passage, um, and that will end tonight because this kind of turned into two sermons. So we'll talk more about scattered worship next week. But there are three things from this passage that I want to focus in on. One, Jesus changes the way we worship. This, this passage is all centered on the reality that Jesus is changing the way we worship. No longer will Jews worship in this way and Samaritans worship in this way, but Jesus is unleashing a new way to worship. Even the Samaritan woman had this expectation that when the Messiah came, he would explain how true worship is supposed to happen. So when Jesus arrives on the scene, being the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one, then he is the source for how we ought to understand our worship. And he changes it in two primary ways. He changes it by making it not limited to a location or to a people group. And secondly, it's done in the spirit and in truth. So the old way of worship was you actually had to go to the temple and have the priest stand and intercede for you. Um, and there was a specific location that you had to go to to worship. And Jesus is changing that because, two, worship is not limited to a location any longer or to a people group. What Jesus is doing is he is unleashing worship and breaking the limitations of where worship takes place. 
He says, believe me, there's a time that's coming, and he says that this time is now, that you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. In other words, you don't have to be on a specific mountain like the Samaritans believed in order to worship God. You don't have to be in a specific city or temple like the Jews believed to worship God. You don't have to be in a specific country, a certain state, have a specific atmosphere with a lighting scheme, experience a specific set of circumstances in order to worship God. Jesus has broken the limitations of how we can worship. And this applies to all people, the Jew, the Samaritan, the American, the Iranian, Australian, African, whatever. All people can be freed to worship because Jesus has shattered the limitations for how we can worship. And, this, and how does he do that exactly? It leads to our third point. Worship is done in the spirit and in truth. So the way that Jesus breaks the limitations of where worship can take place is by unleashing the spirit into our lives. Jesus, when he came... He declared us righteous through his perfect life, atoning death and resurrection. And then he gave us his spirit to dwell inside of us. And what is so key about that is no longer is the presence of God reserved for just a temple in a specific city like Jerusalem. It's brought to us so that the presence of God is no longer felt in a outside location. It's felt inwardly that we can experience God, the presence of God, at any time through the Holy Spirit. So this means that worship is not simply some place you go to or an activity you fall into in a location. Worship is something that flows out of you by the Holy Spirit. So this is why we can worship in the scattered context. This is why we don't have to travel to a location to worship God because Jesus has brought the location to us by giving us the Spirit. That's amazing. If we are followers of Jesus, wherever we go, we bring, us, we bring with us the Spirit and are therefore able to worship. Now, this does not mean that, this, that worship is detached from the truth. Your worship will always be tied up in the object of your worship. So if, you're, if you are worshiping something that's not worthy to be worshipped or not truly worthy to be worshipped, your worship is idolatry. So we spoke about that in the first section. First session, we, God is the only object of our worship because only God is truly worthy to be worshipped. Only he's worthy of your worship. Not academics, not the amount of time you spend trying to win friends. If you have to win friends, you're probably, you should just give up. Give up. <laughs> there was this one book that was written that was like how to what is it five habits of like how to influence yeah I always felt like that's cheating it can't be like a magic code to influence people we can't just have anybody walking around influencing people anyway but um, your, your object of worship if it's not God, then it's unworthy to be worshipped. If it's not God, then it's not truly worthy, and your worship is not grounded in the truth. Because anything other than God is not worthy of your worship. It's not truly worthy. So your worship has to take place in truth. We'll talk more about that next week. But um, I want you to hold on to this truth from tonight. That the only reason you don't have to come to this location to worship The only reason we don't have to go to a temple and have a priest stand there in front of us and administer worship 
to us is because of Jesus. Wherever you go, you have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of you so that you can worship in the scattered context. It's only because of Jesus that we can worship outside of these doors. That's, that's important to understand that part of the work Jesus was doing when he came was enabling us, crushing the limitations of a temple and a location of worship so that we can experience worship every day of our lives. And in that, he's restoring the image of God in you. He's restoring in you the ability to represent God wherever you go. So, this is the closing thought. Jesus changes everything, especially our worship. Jesus changes everything, especially our worship. We cannot understand how to truly worship if we don't understand how Jesus has broken the limitations of of gathered worship so we can worship in the scattering. It's awesome news. You don't have to go to some place or be in a certain circumstances to experience God. 